There goes the entire listenership. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome from Alpha, from Alpha to Omega. Hello, and welcome to the 38th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Sunday, the 22nd of September 2013, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week's show has been brought to you by the generous donation of Joan O'B. Thanks very much. If you'd like to help keep the show ticking over and buy some clothes for my newborn son, why not make a once-off donation or sign up to become a subscriber by clicking on the donate button on the podcast website. This week, we are joined by C. Derek Varn. Derek is a poet and theorist. He blogs for the disloyal opposition to modernity, symptomatic commentary, and is one of the chief editors of the online socialist magazine, The North Star. He also co-hosts the Pop the Left podcast with Doug Lane, and has just started a new online literary magazine called Former People, a journal of bangs and whimpers, which seeks to look again at modernism and its relevance to politics. This week, we discuss the historical tensions between Marxists and anarchists, how Occupy stunned the vanguard, the problems with democracy and the flaws of Leninism, Chomsky on Marx, the interaction of the base and the superstructure, and how capitalism is killing the dinosaurs. We join the conversation as we discuss his recent work as the editor of the North Star. You know, I've been busy up my ass actually since I sort of accidentally inherited the North Star after I started my own journal. So it was started by, uh, if I'm being about a year and a half ago, in response to Occupy, kind of with the money of a certain Lewis project, you know, famous or infamous, depending on your perspective. And it was to sort of build on Occupy and explore things that other groups weren't exploring. And it really believed in the power of open dialogue. So Louis Proyek is a Marxist. Oh, yeah, he's a Marxist, uh, former member of the, of the SWP in the 70s. He used to write for The Nation. Calls himself an unrepentant Marxist. Generally sides with the Latin American bloc, uh, the Castro Chavez block on things, um, sort of an ex-Trotskyist. He knew Peter Camejo, the, the former gubernatorial candidate from uh, California, who was also part of the SWP. And started was part of the early North Star Network. Project is kind of known for being, for writing polemics. Um, recently, in the, since Libya, changing his side on NATO intervention to be more and more pro-intervention in Libya and Syria on humanitarian wings. The North Star was not his. He never had control of it, but he did front the initial money for it and kind of mentored Bing, the old editor. Side note, he hates me, so that should probably be noted. Don't we all? (laughs) Yeah. He didn't want control of it, gave it autonomy. Bing asked some people he knew in New York to work on it. Then he asked me to come on 
and to add more interviews and theoretical content and more literature and that sort of thing. And uh, to bring in more podcasts. Uh, that was what I was supposed to do. And after a couple of conferences and some personal problems with the last few editors I've had that really were truly personal and I'm not going to get into in the air, I was sort of the last man standing with uh, Pavel, the other uh, co-editor, and um, a few other people who have been on since the beginning. You know, as much as I'm involved in doing research and commentating on socialism, I'm actually, I didn't really want to be the editor of uh, kind of a more immediate popular publication. That's not really my goal in life. It's really also hard to do because I, I live in other countries from the States, which is where the North Guard used to be focused. That's no longer true. Um, the editorial staff is actually spread out between Canada, States, Britain, and Mexico now. But originally it was mostly a center in New York. That's the brief history of the magazine. Um, it's sort of become infamous because being um, like project was obsessed with Syria and due to popular connotation to the Wong side and the North Star was accused of taking a sort of a neoconservative socialist slant. And I mean, no one used those words, but that was basically what it was accused of. It was a lot on being, and also it was a rift within the editorship itself because why we will not censor anyone's point of view, we didn't agree on foreign policy. Um, and we still don't agree on foreign policy, actually. The U.S. foreign policy is pretty divisive amongst us still. And so I was just sort of the last man standing. You have a new banner. Oh, yeah. We made it more anarchisty. I'm not an anarchist, and actually neither really is Pavel, but we're not hostile to it in the same way a lot of people are. The ultimate goal of of socialism is is to do away with the need for a coercive apparatus like the state. So, I mean, in the long view, I guess you could call us anarchists, but not in the immediate view. Like, there's a big, big difference between, let's say, me and David Graeber. But I'm not hostile to them. And it was sort of, you know, when we redid the banner and the masthead, we really wanted to make it known that a lot of this hostility that goes back years and years and years and years and is rooted in some really real history is increasingly not relevant now. And if we're going to sit down and talk about what communism or socialism or, you know, Marxism means now, we really have to go in with an eye for history. You know, we have to know it. We have to try to understand it. But we don't have to, like, prescribe it as if we could take the 1970s, pick it up and place it in 2013 or 1917 and do it either. Can you say something about the kind of tensions that historically exist between the two socialist brands? Oh, God. You know, it starts in the First International. The First International sort of came apart. There's a famous Marx-Bakunin fallout where uh, Bakunin more or less accuses Marx of being uh, too interested in the state, not being quick enough to devolve state power. And Marx accuses Bakunin, and this is often missed, actually, of being a vanguardist, of not being interested in class work, of being too willing to use terrorism and other really, you know, sort of elitist and really authoritarian tactics to get his work done. And this all sort of comes to a head in the barrack socialism issues in, you know, the 19th century and, uh, you know, some Russian anarchists who were literally just slaughtering each other. And this also comes again ahead in 1914 and 1917 Russian revolutions in the Russian Civil War, particularly with the Ukrainian black contingent, which adopted an anarchist platform and fought the Bolsheviks um, and lost. 
pretty horribly. So there's a real history there. I don't really find this obsession to be as useful as a lot of other people do. I, I, I tend to think that anarchism is much more nebulous than Marxism, but Marxism is pretty nebulous, as you know. I mean, the difference between someone in the Labour Party who has vague Marxist sympathies and, say, someone in the Red Guards in 1970 or someone even in, who writes for you know, a magazine like InNotes now they're completely different people. So there's so much diversity within those movements now that it seems a little bit weird to be positing this hard distinction between them. And neither anarchism nor Marxism has a, has a really good track record as far as what it actually does with state power. You, you can't get around that even if you're the most anti-revisionist Stalinist in the world, that the Soviet Union imploded largely from things that began in the 1930s, and work themselves out over a generation. You can't really argue that the few anarchists who have ever been successful revolutionaries, uh, such as the ones in South Korea or the ones in, in Italy, became more and more nationalistic over time. And I mean, like some of the, some of the people who were anarchists in 1905 were members of, of the fascist party by 1930. And this is just a historical reality you can't really escape. So neither has a great track record. So this whole, you know, if you want to go on the beautiful soul distinctions in politics, neither one really looks all that good. And they're both pretty corrupted. And when they're not corrupted, they tend to have never actually had any sort of state influence, either demolishing states or actually, you know, succeeding at what they're trying to do or, or not becoming part of a really repressive state itself. It seems like it would be difficult to talk about Occupy without actually talking about anarchism. Well, yeah, I mean, the, uh, I have my critiques of Occupy. I mean, it, it's it's on the record that I'm less sanguine about it than probably yourself or a lot of people. But I think it's completely disingenuous to not see how anarchist ideas really had an influence on that. Now, how you see that playing out now is is probably colored by what you actually see yourself as. But it's interesting to me that the anarchists sort of functioned as a vanguard of ideas in a spontaneous moment way better than people who actually consider vanguard tactics as an operational principle, which I just found fascinating. Quite ironic for both sides, actually, because it, it sort of indicates that in some ways anarchists are more complicit in setting up like hierarchies and things than they realize but also that the Marxist way of organizing cadres or whatever just doesn't really make sense anymore. I think that's going to be you know, something that people have to look at as maybe one of the few good things that I think comes out of the burnout of Occupy. It's easy to see now, two years later. What do you mean? Well, I mean, Occupy was not able to sustain itself without a physical location, which is strange because the physical location was always sort of arbitrary. It's attempts to do things like the rolling debt jubilee while they did raise like $600,000. As far as like actually denting debt at all, that's like a drop in a bucket. That's not, you know, that's like four people's student loans. It's a drop in a very large bucket. Yeah, it's more maybe like a drop in a bucket in an ocean in space. And so there hasn't been a lot of sustainability that, that Occupy Sandy was actually pretty useful. So I'm not going to completely knock it, but where Occupy has been actually useful, it's been pretty reactive. It's been reacting to problems and trying to fix them. It's not, it's not really trying to 
move things. It's kind of a band-aid now. Um, and it's also really had a tendency to blur with more sort of banal liberal activism, and that's a problem. Um, particularly in the U.S., it's harder to read how things have gone in Europe, but I think a lot of the optimism over Shiraz and some of the other movements has not panned out as much as people had wanted. There's a, there's a certain amount of skepticism post-Occupy that... I think we need for people who want to deal with social crises. And I, and I think that skepticism needs to be pretty deep. There's a lot of central figures that you have to kind of overturn. And I mean, even for myself, you know, we did a podcast, you and I, about Lenin and what I thought about the Vanguard Party, where I, I think people may have been very interested in what I had to say, but they probably were confused as to where I actually stood. Because for most of my 30s, and I'm not that old, but for most of my, my 30s, I considered myself a Leninist of some sort. But I I am much more skeptical that that's, that's historically transferable or applicable or useful now. And that has nothing to do with whether or not Lenin had interesting things to say or whether or not the solution of 1917 was some kind of reversion to state capitalism or was it Stalin? I, I actually am not as interested in those questions for my personal politics, I am interested in those questions for historical analysis, but I've had to question a lot after Occupy because Occupy threw a lot of my beliefs up in the air. But but it also, I think, Occupy is much, I think Occupy is a lot darker than a lot of people have, have realized. Like what? Well, for one, the way it got caught up in celebrating itself and its prefiguration it's interesting because I think it didn't really prefigure a new society. It more responded to it. And since it focused on like consensus organizing tactics, everything was necessarily slow. In a situation where you're talking about an occupation, and if you're really talking about changing society, you're talking about revolutionary change, slowness kills you. And it was also weirdly, its, its power came was birthed from and also destroyed by police oppression. Before the brutalness of the NYPD, I, I don't think a lot of people thought that this ad busters, you know, protest was going to be a whole lot. You know, that we had seen this before and really that, that, that these things have been tried since the battle for Seattle and not gone off as well as people had hope. And, you know, in the cases of like the G8 protest at, at Island, you know, a few years after the battle for Seattle and, you know, after 9-11, which I was at, like, it was a complete dud. I mean, it's just nothing happened. So there was this real expression of populist rage and real movements towards, you know, things that we would consider friendly to socialism. Under a democratic president, which is interesting, I mean, this was not, this was much harder to frame as a story, but it was so attached to a place and so attached to the idea of prefiguration but I don't think it could respond when that place was taken away from it. Did you see what Zizek said about Occupy? It's easy to be just formally anti-capitalist, but what does it really mean? It's totally open. This is why, as I always repeat, with all my sympathy for Occupy Wall Street movement, its result was, I call it, a Bartleby lesson. Bartleby, of course, Herman Melville's Bartleby. You know who always answered his favorite, I would prefer not to. The message of Occupy Wall Street is 
I would prefer not to play the existing game. There is something fundamentally wrong with the system and the existing forms of institutionalized democracy are not strong enough to deal with problems. Beyond this, they don't have an answer and neither do I. For me, Occupy Wall Street is just a signal, it's like clearing the table. Time to start thinking. You know, it strikes me that I think there's quite a truth to this. And there was also like a kind of fetishization of the democratic process above every other thing. The most important thing was the purity of the democratic process. I think it was two things at once, honestly. I think it was actually the beginning of something new, but that thing hasn't fully been birthed yet. I think parts of it was real labor anxiety. I think parts of it was... This is going to sound so cynical, but I think parts of it in the States was also, you know, middle class kids who who have been screwed, but uh, kind of wanted another bribe and then realizing that they're not going to get that had to grow up and be, and really look at the world. And I think Occupy was good for that. I think Occupy also is the death of a certain kind of movement. You know, even though I think a lot of anarchist stuff emerged out of that, and you have to really talk about anarchism, you have to be fair to anarchists and really listen to them too, actually. A lot of what they have to say is very sound on on some things about the way socialist, you know, not just like Leninist, Stalinist or whatever, not your is, but even social democrats have handled the state. They have some good critiques there. But it seems like a certain kind of, of anarchism that sort of emerged in the mid-90s it may actually have died with Occupy, interestingly enough. And depending on how you how you feel about that, it depends probably on your own ideological perspective. I'm very mixed. I think in some ways that's good and in some ways that's really bad. But I don't think Occupy is unidirectional. If you if you look at Occupy and say it's all good or you look at Occupy and say it's all bad, as left wing groups are wont to do, as you know to just make a clean-cut critique, appraisal of Occupy. I, I think you have to look at it and see that it, it, it's, it's a manifestation of real social economic problems that don't have easy answers, and it's people trying to find their way out of that. And I think it could be the beginning of something that I think is even bigger than a movement. I think it could be the beginning of, of people actually really struggling with what society is now in a real way. But I, I also hesitate to be super sanguine on it because, honestly, its effects have not manifested yet. The, the parliamentary effects – I mean, Europe's been abysmal, as you know. You, who would have thought that the right would be empowered by all this? I think Zizek in his last book actually talks about that, that, it, that right now you're seeing dangerous dreams memoring up both left and right. In a way that reflects – because we're in a transition period and a lot of things can happen, just like – both the period, you know, from, say, 1895 to, say, 1940 really was a transition period. And so when I put it in, you know, those kind of perspectives, you know, these both economic and cultural cycles are really long. We can't say what any of this is yet, really. We can only say what parts of it are. And since we're still in the moment of it, it's really hard to see. And, and from my perspective, I was not in the States for most of Occupy Wall Street. I was abroad. I was in Asia. And I did see Occupy Taiwan, Occupy Yoido, and Occupy um, Seoul. But those were very, very brief movements compared to the American and European counterparts. They showed up. They had moderate popular support. And Korea 
they turned into anti-free trade movement kind of quickly. And those uh, protests had a mixture of far right and far left wing appeals. There's just as much highly nationalistic stuff in that in Korea as there was otherwise. And so, you know, that was interesting for me to watch. And then I went back and I went to D.C. I went to New York on vacation right after Occupy, after they'd been evicted from the park, but before things had really died down. I talked to those people and, you know, I got a very different feel from what was motivating Americans than what was motivating, you know, the Occupy protest in Asia. The Asian Occupy protests weren't as attached to a specific space, but other than a sense of international solidarity, they also weren't as clear in what they were trying to do. Why? What do you think the American Occupy was trying to do? Revolution? I, that's a good question. I, I think the American Occupy was much more clear about inequity in a way that the Asian Occupies actually weren't. So I have a question for you. When you said, you said earlier that you're not that great big a fan of democracy, what do you mean by it? Oh, gosh. Uh, this is going to get me in trouble. Uh, to hell with it. I don't think democracy as, as either consensus or representation really works. I think consensus is too slow. It involves a lot of tacit coercion that isn't acknowledged. Whenever you want to get people consistent, you have to convince them somehow. And usually it's through rhetorical skills. So it's a sort of kind of blind charisma. And so there's something actually weirdly very undemocratic about that hyper-democratic form of organization. And that's very strange. It's, you know, to, to use Marxist speak, it's dialectical, but I think it's a real problem. Because it, it favors a certain kind of rhetorician who can really speak to people in a way that's immediate, and then they can hash it out. But that's going to who's going to dominate a consensus-based discussion. Conversely, I think representative democracy is sort of a perverse incentive system. So you you elect people to represent you, but while they're representing you, they have like Hobbesian power to represent themselves, or more likely their interests. Those interests uh, generally involve money, and ironically, the larger scale a representative democracy is, the more people that are involved in it, it also becomes ironically less democratic. So I tend to favor council sort of organizations that, that, I mean, they would still be democratic, but they're very... When you say council, describe exactly what you mean by a council democracy. I'm kind of referring to the council communists, actually, of like Sweden in the turn of the, of the last century. I tend to favor organization where like there is a council that is elected by peers and they can be recalled at any time by a constituency. They have autonomy when they operate. And, you know, if I was going to implement this in a modern democracy, there would be no campaigning. I mean, the, the, it would be very different than, than what you do with now. And things scale up, like councils elect other councils elect other councils. So a kind of classical council communist or even syndicalist is quite close. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, I'm really influenced by an Italian thinker called Bordiga, who is famous for saying to hell with democracy. That's not really a point. And there are times where democracy is dangerous, and there are times when democracy is going to produce things that are just as fucked up as the society that produces it. So it's really hard to talk about like what vibrant, non-coercive, non-economically exploitive, not interested in producing abstract value democracy would look like because that society doesn't exist yet. 
You know, it's not something that we can talk about in the same way. So like the structures we have for democracy were set up largely in the 17th century to reflect a world that was produced by the end of an aristocratic era and the beginning of early bourgeois capitalism. And those forms of democracy, I think, tend to be what people see as democracy when they talk about it. And I'm just fundamentally not interested in that. I'm not interested in parliamentarianism, and I'm not interested in consensus. I don't think consensus is quick enough. I don't think it's honest in a way. So you emailed me and you said you you'd made a complete break with modern Leninism. Yes. This kind of council communism seems to be pretty different to what I would consider Leninist thought. The exact opposite. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would still have sort of Leninist values, maybe, if you were looking at education. But even then, like, I think socialists right now can't even have a meaningful program. Like, we don't know what that would look like. What do you mean by that? I, I don't understand. Like, I couldn't sit down and say to you, like, we need to do this, this, and this, and this, and this to defeat capitalism. Like, I can't say, lay down, like, a, you know, like a transitional program or even like a, a socialist program. I kind of wonder if a transitional program is even meaningful. But so, like, even if we had a revolution tomorrow, I couldn't tell you, you know, what I thought society would look like in an ideal sense. And I think that that positivity, that positive political orientation is really obscure right now, which is why I'm interested in that and why I'm increasingly interested in early modernism, both historically and as a literary movement, because that's another time period where it's very hard to say what future society is going to look like. We have hints of it. And if you're really got on the pulse of things, you can see where some things are going to go wrong. But those things that were going wrong were already things that one saw in the beginning of the old society that was passing away in the 17th century. It's not like capitalism emerged full cloth after the Protestant Revolution in England and then the French Revolution. That's not what happened. It, it was revolutionary and that it was complete breaks, but it wasn't all at once. It was several complete breaks that kept happening and then reactions and counter-reactions and movements forwards and movements backwards. And I don't think you could sit down and say, like, I couldn't train professional cadre revolutionaries to train people for that world because I don't know what that world is. And I think the fundamental flaw of the way most Leninists operate is they look at a certain period of time and a certain mode of socialist operation and try to generalize it to a different period of time. And I don't think that works. I think, actually, if you really read the Marxist historical writings, you would sort of have to come to the conclusion that that's not even really possible. But in so much that you even think it was, I've said this before, even to you, that, that if you were trying to run a revolution now and you're trying to run a revolution against a early 20th century czar with a completely different kind of police state, what you have to do is very, very different, just from practical reasons. But those differences affect the way you think. You know, even if I still respect Lenin, and my view of Lenin is highly mixed, although I do more or less think he was on the right side of history, I don't think you can come away saying that you could just implement that now, that we could just take, you know, a Bolshevik program and just sort of transfer it to the United States. I don't think you could have transferred it to the United States in 19... 17, I, I actually think objectively that's just true, which is why so many communist groups never could get headway in the States. 
you know, even at times when there were a lot of people sympathetic to communism at times where the socialist movement was huge, like in the 1920s and 30s, and, in, and even to more so in the 1910s, you couldn't have taken what was happening in Russia and transfer it in the same way because it's, it's not the same society. Do you think there's a deeper critique of Leninism, barring just that it's not applicable today, you know, the deeper critique of, say, that it's not the Council of Communism, it seems to be a kind of a, a different political formation? I think the deeper critique of Leninism is Leninism would have a tendency to rigify or reify itself in a way that would completely make it very fragile very soon after its revolution. And I think I think actually the reasons for that are, are philosophical and not entirely rooted in Lenin even. Um, I think they have to do with our conception of what Leninism is comes at a very specific time period right after a huge civil war that devastated Russia. And not just Russia, but all of Eastern Europe. And you're talking about, you know, an emergence of psychological trauma that's huge. And it was very hard to deal with. And also, this is in the context of 1918, the German Revolution is supposed to happen, and it doesn't. That's supposed to be when... When Europe's going to emerge, it tries to. The socialists and the communists turn on each other, partly because they didn't split sooner, in a way. But turning each other in such a way that they both end up exhausting themselves and more or less lead the road to fascism happening. And I think that's, that's true in a lot of Europe. And that's a pretty damn deep critique, if you really think about it. Now, do I think Lenin as a human being and the person who wrote like what is to be done and the state of revolution um do i think he can be held responsible for that and i don't but if you were to ask me if i thought that you could also just say it wasn't him at all there's nothing in those ideas that wouldn't go that way i would have to laugh at you that's silly that's apologetics lenin during the civil war cut out the plurality of tendencies in the party. There just weren't other tendencies allowed, and there weren't other parties allowed. There weren't other socialists, there weren't other, other proletarian parties allowed to participate. That comes out of the Civil War that is actually against Lenin's own stated goals. And in the Civil War, it makes some sense as a concession to necessity, but then I start feel like I'm talking like an Obama apologist, right? And I don't give them that out, so I don't give myself that out either. And I can't, at the end of the day, say that you can justify it. The North Star seems to be, the, a lot of the readership would probably be Marxist-Leninist types. Would that be fair? A lot of them would actually see themselves as social democrats, actually. And they're very obsessed with democracy, but their obsession with democracy is actually weirdly prescriptive. And they tend to have a notion of a vanguard party or a party of the working class. And I think that's because most of our readership, if I was to be honest, particularly our commoners, maybe even more than our readership, our readership's actually changing. They're, they're either Trotskyists or former Trotskyists. That's going to be controversial because everybody who's not a Trotskyist who is our reader, not a former Trotskyist who is a reader, is going to have an issue with that. But that's a lot of who our audience is. It's people who are disillusioned from groups like the American International Socialist Organization in the US SWP in the 70s and in the UK SWP like last year. You know, that's a lot of who's there. We don't have a lot of anarchists. I mean, anarchists and Marxists don't trust each other. They profoundly don't for good historical reasons. But at a certain point, like, to keep those animosities up is play acting. 
how do you go about trying to square the kind of strategic circle of a kind of a centralist Leninist vanguard party structure and the distributed autonomous anarchist structure? I don't think you can. That's one of the reasons why I'm not a member of any political party. I'm not a member of, of the ISO. I've never been a member of a workers' party. I've never been a member of any party. I once flirted with joining the Socialist Party of the United States. You know, I've joined organizations, but not parties for, for kind of that reason. Even, even as a Leninist, I don't think parties work the same way now, and I don't think you can bring them back. I mean, when you talk about what parties used to be, those things aren't going to exist in this world. They can't. There's too many other things who eat, too many other things that eat up those social functions. But I do think some sense of class solidarity is really important. And, you know, maybe that's also a limit to my democracy. I don't think everybody can get along. I mean, I really, at the end of the day, don't. I don't think you could take even, even a relatively benign capitalist like Warren Buffett and let him sort of be a part of the new world without some significant change. Some kind of reprogramming. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's going to be traumatic, even if it's not deadly. You know, one of my things about the history of revolutions is when they go into their terror periods, it's almost always justifiable, but it almost always fails. You know, it turns in on itself. I can't think of a revolution really that had a, a terror period where that didn't happen. That, that mentality, in, in a way, weirdly, and, and being violent in that conventional way, it's not violent enough. It doesn't really cut away from what's going on deep enough. But does that not say something about the kind of failure of it as a model? It's certainly something that would terrify most listeners, I would think, to think that the terror can be justifiable. I think it is terrifying. I also think if you're in a, in a civil war situation, you can automatically justify it to yourself. It may be, you know, just a function of cognitive dissonance, honestly. I'm not, I don't think it's actually excusable. If you were to, like, talk to me about the Cultural Revolution, we talked about this a little bit before, but I, I know a lot about it. And I realized that a lot of the way the Cultural Revolution is portrayed as like this time where there's these massive state executions, that's actually not so much true. What you have is a situation that sort of is encouraged by the government that goes very, very far and gets incredibly bloody for reasons that have to do with like centuries-old repressions and racial tensions in China that are allowed to sort of play out when the repressive apparatus is removed. And that's terrifying. And I don't know that you can say like, oh, if I was in that situation, my good, you know, humanist, and I'm not actually really that humanist, but my, my good humanist moral values would win out. That said, it obviously exhausts itself. You can't build a new world on rivers of blood. I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me. Blood is not a particularly good fertilizer for social movements. Maybe for plants, but it's not for social movements. And I think that's a realistic problem people have to deal with. I think, I think people have to really look at the notion of revolution itself and the notion of evolution and change. I think, I think people have very old ideas about what they are. And we don't really live in that world. I mean, like people tend to think, like when they think of a revolution, they think of 1917 and, and Moscow, or they think of the French Revolution, or they think of the American Revolution, or they think of the Mexican Revolution of 1910, you know, or 1810, the first Mexican Revolution for Independence. I mean, they think of these things. But there have also been revolutions that were much quieter. They weren't reforms, they were sort of revolutionary implosions. You can think of hell, like five of them in 1989 alone. 
You could think of the revolutions and counter-revolutions in Iran from like 1910 to 1979 and mock like seven or eight of them. And none of them go the way anyone thinks they're going to go because there's so many state powers working at hand. And from a more marxist perspective, the bourgeois and proletarian interests are so contradictory that you can't really see what's going to happen. I don't think you can go in with this brave, heroic notion of being able to repeat what Lenin did in 1917, even if you wanted to. I just don't think it's possible. And I think there's also always other social conditions that people ignore. I think Marxists particularly are kind of bad about this. I think they, they tend to wrap everything up in economic struggle. And I think there's a truth to that. I think at the bottom of things, things are more moved by economic struggle than anything else. But economic struggle will manifest in cultural ways and in ways that people forget about when they're just focused on vulgar economics. So, like, you wouldn't think about, you know, racial subtensions in China from 300 years ago showing up in the Cultural Revolution, but they definitely do. These are things that people just need to look at more seriously. And I think Occupy, and, you know, this is, speaks in one of its, in its favors. I was really kind of down on it in early questions, but... I think they realize the problems with that. And the, the other thing that you can say if, from just a practical point, right, the, the Leninists were completely caught off guard by Occupy. The Leninists were also completely caught off guard by 1968. Now, both of those things objectively sort of failed. But the fact that people didn't even see them as a possibility and thus couldn't react to them positively or negatively in the moment until, like, it was already almost over. And that's both the case for Occupy and May 1968. It's really fascinating to me. Now, I, I think that 1968 had problems, you know. I could point out all the problems to you, but th that's not really the point. The point is that the, the people who were thought they were the representatives of of a, you know, Leninist state power. And this, remember, in a time, but in 1968, where the Soviet Union was very, very real in a way that it does not seem now. They just weren't, they weren't there. They couldn't be the vanguard. They weren't out in front. You know, they could basically complain about those dirty kids, and a lot of them did, but they, they, they really couldn't get out in front of it. I just think that's, that's, that's damning. It's really damning. And, and that's been something I've been thinking about for the past two years. You know, in one case, why did Occupy not succeed? And on another, why were all these old traditional socialist and communist groups completely caught off guard by it? Like, why were they not there? Why were they not part of the leadership? Why were they not on the working councils? Why did they not try to inculcate themselves in the consensus? They didn't do that till really late. Here's what Professor Richard Day thinks Karl Marx would have taught about Occupy. Oh, a bunch of uh, bourgeois kids uh, are screwing around. We need to get in there. They need to read my books. They need to fully understand their class positioning. They are the middle class. They are the comprador elite. They work for the very people they're trying to rip down. They need to understand that. They need to destroy their own privilege and become part of the true workers' movement. Battle lines have to be drawn between us and them. The 99-1 thing, bogus. They don't understand their position in world history. Understand their position in world history. Their position in world history. 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 Position in world history.
I heard Chomsky interview recently where he was talking about Marx and the possibility for radical reform through parliamentary democracy. He was saying that Marx wasn't dismissive of the possibility that revolutionary change could be possible through existing political structures. How come is it then that Marx got so associated with revolutionary and violent revolutionary tactics? Well, to be fair, anarchists are also associated with violent revolutionary. But yes, I think it's because if you read Das Kapital, you realize that the system of production has to be fundamentally broken down. And every Marxist kind of struggles with how to do that, right? I am very hesitant to agree with Chomsky, actually, that Marx thought that parliamentary reform would be revolutionary. He did think that parliamentary reform could help the workers in a way that they could seize power in some way. I think if you read Marx's writings on the the putting down of the French commune, he was really clear the proletariat had to assume power in a way that would freeze society because if they didn't, basically people who already had all the guns were going to kill them all. And in the case of the Paris commune, that's pretty much exactly what happened. I think he's responding to that. And that leaves a sort of bloody taste in socialist mouths. But he didn't say don't deal with trade unions. He didn't say, don't do any of this. What he said was that wasn't going to be enough. And I guess when you're out of ideas or when things seem pretty bleak, not enough pretty much seems to be calling for violence. It's hard to say what Marx meant on that. He clearly thought that the bourgeoisie were empowered by a revolution and a revolution would be necessary to to change the proletariat. But there's other things that are going on there that make that much harder to see now. Like, for example, it's hard to even target a bourgeoisie now. There is a bourgeoisie, there are owners, but they're so diffuse and ownership is so diffuse and almost unnecessary to the life of, of most people. I mean, even most workers, they have no connection to an owner at all, not even as an oppressor. It's just like a structural form and a holder of shares. And in some cases, they may even be the owner through small visible shares of a company, it doesn't really change how it functions. It might change it a little bit, it might make it more humane, but it doesn't fundamentally alter it. And that's something that people don't know how to deal with. The thing that I think we've learned from the 20th century is violence alone, or violence, even violence in general, an overzealousness for violence, doesn't seem to produce the kind of results that people would want. You know, I mean, Russia is still having a demographic crisis that's partly based off of the fact that the 20th century, like, nearly depopulated Russia twice. I mean, it's insane, really. If you were to look at the number of Russian lives lost in the 20th century between 1900 and 1967, and then the slow decline after 89, it's just, it's sort of amazing how that society has been hollowed out. Now, you know, I know people will argue, yes, we need to, to reduce population, but let's be honest, we don't want Russia to be the model for how that happens. You don't want a civil war, then the terror, then World War II, then another little mini-terror, then a, you know, peace for a while, and then the war in Afghanistan, and then Soviet collapse, and ill health, and bad infrastructure to devastate the population. That's just not really a way you want to go about it, right? I'd hope not. Marx called the economic system the base structure of society and the superstructure, you know, the legal system and the police and the military and everything else. They were designed by the people who ran and owned the economic system. If the possibility exists for, say, the parliamentary system or some aspect of the superstructure, 
acting back on the base structure to change it. This idea to me seems quite interesting. But say, for example, I asked Brendan Cooney about this, like he thought I was essentially losing my marbles. I find that interesting because Cooney actually talks about the state capitalist mentality, right? Well, the state capitalist mentality, the fact that there could be a distinction between state capitalism and just regular old capitalism does indicate that the state can act like a class in the way it deals with surplus value, which means that in a way it does have some determinating factor. And it's important to remember that on the base superstructure stuff, Marx actually never said that the base was the sole determinant. Engels says the base is the determinant in the last instance, whatever that means, which indicates that the base superstructure is a feedback loop. It's not a balanced feedback loop. The base does matter more because the superstructure is not possible without it, but it's a feedback loop that exists because of a dialectical tension in capitalism. And actually, I wouldn't even just say capitalism and bourgeois society, which is dependent on capitalism, to be even more specific. So, for example, the state doesn't control the economy, but it doesn't not either. It can actually change things. If that were not possible, then really, then there's no real possibility of social transformation. Because if the base produces everything, you can't act on the base. And if you can't act on the base, then you can't change the base, and then there should never be different stages in history. So if you take that base superstructure metaphor too literally and make it too rigid and make the base too determinate, then you've basically actually like put yourself in a hole where revolution is not only not likely, but impossible, logically. And I know there are people who would argue with me to death about this. Someone like Brendan Cooney or uh, Kleiman would probably say I was wrong here or that I was misunderstanding what they're saying. And I actually kind of think maybe we are. But I think you, you have to be clear that there are things that change the system. Now, do I think it's going to happen through parliamentary elections? I have to admit, I'm not particularly sanguine about that. I find it very unlikely, but I find the idea that, that there could be a, some action of the superstructure back on the bit structure, some kind of feedback mechanism, that there might be theoretical work to be done there and maybe understanding what that feedback mechanism could be and how you could design a party or a strategy around perhaps that function. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm not, like I said, I'm not a sanguine with you, but I don't really understand when people go to the base superstructure analysis, what point they're trying to make. Because if you take the hard line, the base is the sole determinant, the only thing you do is change the base. Well, the base produces every other element of society, and thus it also produces your consciousness. Thus, how can you change it? You get into a, a bootstrap problem. Where I don't think that's really the way it works. I think the base does determine things in ways people aren't even conscious of. Essentially, the base or the economics can create the negation of that base structure. So the economics working your shitty job can piss you off so much you go, fuck this, let's have a revolution. Well, I mean, that, that was basically, I think that was basically Marx's point. That through either immiseration or actually alternating immiseration and prosperity, through things either getting better and then getting worse, or for things just continually getting worse, See, depending on which economic manuscript or Das Kapital you read and how you interpret it, it's actually unclear if he thinks that these are cyclic or just a long, you know, a long, slow descent into shit. Although I think historically 
the, the reading that views Marx and long cycles is probably the slightly better one. Because the final crisis of capitalism just doesn't ever seem to be there, even as capitalism looks to be tearing the world apart. I think that sort of affects politics and stuff in a way too, but it, it obviously affects the economy. I mean, like, for example, neoliberalism is a political project. It's a political project that I think emerges out of, out of a need to deal with an economic problem, but it's a political project, and it is a feedback loop, and it does change culture. I mean, the culture of Europe and the culture of the U.S., economically are very different from each other, but they still exist in the same worldwide totality of capitalist production. So those differences have to be explained by some of their means. And it, I think it, ha it does have to do with the superstructure. I do think at the end, though, if, if a, something that's a superstructure or a cultural mechanism can't actually take hold of the economy and do something about it, like in a deeper way than just ameliorating some, some immediate problems or waging rages for a couple of years. In a much deeper way than that, I, I, I think it's doomed. Without a means of reproducing yourself, you know, even as a species, you don't survive. And honestly, if you don't have some means of production, you, you don't have means of reproduction, you won't live. And that's true for any movement. But the idea that it's got to somehow emerge solely from economic conditions, seems to reify economic conditions as a sort of super real thing. But I think, I think economic conditions are very real, but it's not, it's not that simple. And the kinds of feedback loops, I don't even think you're talking about one feedback loop, I'm talk, I think you're talking about like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So at any level, you could be dealing with two or three things at a time. If you're trying to change society, you have to deal with all of it, and yet you can't deal with all of it. So you're, you're making revolutionary changes piecemeal, and I think that's always true. You know, I, I understand the critique of gradualism, and I actually completely endorse it, but I don't think you're going to change the world overnight by waving your hand. If anything, honestly, is going to happen, then the other view, I think, that you would have to adopt is that you have to admit that capitalist forces are going to exhaust themselves out, and you just have to wipe the wave. I don't know that that's actually... A helpful attitude. But I, I do think it's a very, a very real problem that if you don't have a way to conceive of, you know, changing the economy through other means than a total seizure of the economy completely at one time, I don't think you have a way to change the economy at all. And I, I really think, you know, this is a big problem of a lot of reading Marx's base superstructure talked too strongly. I also think there are people who read it way, way too weakly. I think there are people who talk about cultural transformation as if it could magically fix economic problems. A lot of times they're basing their thoughts off Gramsci, but I think that's sort of foolish. You have to really look at ways to alter the feedback loop, and that will fundamentally change society. What about the eschaton? <laughs> the eschaton? You think I can immunize it? <laughs> You know, I, I think maybe you can see this in ecological crisis. Ecology can be a good metaphor for this because, you know, at the end of the day, economics and ecology are really the same thing. <laughs> Might blow some people's minds because they seem so kind of counterposed in our world. But ecology is the environment as it exists. Economics is a reproduction of it. I can't say, for example, that an animal can't change the ecological situation they're in. That would be foolish. Animals can, animals do. Humans, obviously, but they're not the only ones. I mean, a termite can completely depopulate, you know, the vegetation of a region if they get overabundant and over voracious. 
I think if you look at the feedback loop in that, like obviously the base of uh, wealth is the earth. In fact, Marx even says so. In the critique of the Goethe program, Marx says, for example, labor is not the base of wealth. The earth is the base of wealth. Labor is what transforms wealth into abstract value. But, you know, we can get to really technical points of value theory. I won't bore your listeners with that. That's my job. Yeah. But the source of wealth is the earth. And you can definitely change the earth without even realizing it. Your environment changes you and you change your environment. It's a constant feedback loop. And yes, in the last instance, the environment wins, right? I mean, ultimately, the environment's going to win. And economics is really the same thing. It's the same thing. It's just more abstract. It's the abstract version of the same problem. And so when you look at it that way, things seem both more, more hopeful and less hopeful simultaneously, which I guess is maybe the theme of our conversation today. Like, things are both harder than they seem, but also not as bleak as they could seem. That's team number 26. Yes. <laughs> like, it's bad, but it could be worse. Yeah. <laughs> there is some hope, but not a lot. When it comes to things like green problems, I tend to be not a catastrophist, but not far from it. Like, things are going to get pretty interesting around here pretty soon. And we're going to have to get creative. <laughs> and how creative we get will ultimately determine how long we survive. Things are changing. When I was in Korea, monsoon season moved up a month every year I was there. It got later and later, and hurricane season got later and later. And so I think that's everywhere in the world right now. We live in a time of pretty drastic change, and in a way that's even bigger than our economies. You know, there's a certain amount of liberal, like, oh my God, the world's going to end, that I get really annoyed with. But I do think you have to be pretty realistic. Things are going to change dramatically, and the transition period is going to be hard. It might not be world-ending, but it's going to be hard. We have developed a society that's you know, highly rigidified in a very short period of time. It's been dependent on a very stable environment that even historically was a little bit unusually calm. That's all over because of our own doing. Between global warming and having to be really innovative with different kinds of energy, and we all know what alternative energy is really like, it's just not there yet. And if it is there, it's not going to be a replacement easily for carbon. We know that. Bordiga said this, you know, capitalism doesn't even leave the dead alone. And when it comes to carbon, capitalism doesn't even leave the dinosaurs alone. Even history and, and the detritus of history, we literally burn it up every day. And to a certain point, even if you're not a primitivist and you're not a hard green, and I'm neither of those things, I'm not anti-technology, you have to realize that you're going to have to change something pretty dramatically fairly soon. There's a confluence of things that are going to force change soon. And I think that's why everything feels so up in the air right now. And I think that's why we're living in a, a period of transition, politically and economically, to something that could be very, very good, very, very bad, and anything in between, but it won't be what we have now. And I kind of hope that those of us who are trained in good old Marxian and economics kind of try to get a handle on things soon, because if we don't, someone else will. And I think we've learned that from Greece. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in. And stops my mind from wandering where it 
on this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, by Sun Ra and his orchestra, Slavoj Zizek on Occupy, accompanied by Madness with Our House. You also heard Professor Richard Day dancing with the Knights of Prokofiev, and you are now listening to The Beatles Fixing a Hole. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. (laughs) 